0: Welcome to Season 5 of the Peds NP Pearls of Pediatric Evidence-Based Practice. I'm your host, Becky Carson, Clinical Assistant Professor at Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C. This season marks a return to primary care pediatrics, where we will refocus on health promotion, disease prevention, and the management of primary care illnesses. As I always say, you have to know well before you can know sick. In the spirit of that concept, we're going to start this season off with the first exam you'll ever do on a person, the newborn exam. Stay tuned as we discuss the important history questions, the unique exam for this age group, and some common exam findings that you might recognize. For many students and new providers, infants, and particularly newborns, can be a very intimidating patient population. But they needn't be so, because let's face it, the whole exam is squished down into an eight pound, 20 inch bundle of cuteness that you can learn a lot from, if you know what you're looking for. Let's take some of the mystery out of these creatures by starting at the beginning, the history. Where in the medical record should you document the history in a neonate? Because the patient is a newborn, all of the information goes in the HPI rather than the past medical history. It's recent. It's relevant and it informs our current evaluation of this patient. At some point in the future, it gets more abbreviated and then slides down to the past medical history. But for now, it's relevant to our current encounter. So we consider it HPI. What are the essential components of a newborn's history? Well, it depends. The essential information depends on the nature of the visit. Is it a well visit or is it a sick visit? How old is the infant? Is this your first meeting? After establishing a rapport with the family using some general questions, you'll wanna verify the prenatal history. This includes any complications of pregnancy, maternal diagnoses or medications that might affect the baby, mother's nutrition and any maternal infections with a specific focus on torch infections, GBS and sexually transmitted infections, specifically HIV, gonorrhea and chlamydia and two of your other torch pathogens, HSV and syphilis? Were they detected and treated appropriately? And is there any other cause for concern? Ask about intrapartum antibiotic administration if the mother was GBS positive. It's helpful to know your mother's prior pregnancy history. We typically report this using Gravita G and Para P. You can further delineate mom's parity using the acronym TPAL, which stands for term preterm, abortions, spontaneous or mechanical, and live birth. This ends up sounding like a bunch of letters and numbers to the untrained ear, but if I hear G3P2012, it tells me that mom had three pregnancies with two term deliveries, no preterm deliveries, one abortion or miscarriage, and she has two living children. While we're talking about mom, you can ask about how she's doing, Did she have any injuries or complications during or after birth? And how she's feeling and adjusting as you assess her risk for postpartum depression. Family history and social history are also very important to document because they can give you a great idea on the risks or vulnerabilities to the baby versus strengths in their support systems. Let's talk some more about those deliveries. We wanna know was the baby born via vaginal or cesarean delivery? Was a vaginal delivery spontaneous or induced? Was a C-section emergent or planned? And for what reason? Were there any complications during delivery? For instance, was it assisted with any kind of instrumentation, like forceps or a vacuum? If you're seeing the baby shortly after delivery, you want to know whether the mother had any medications, particularly if they could have an effect on the baby, like magnesium or opioids but this becomes a moot point in the days following birth. If the mother's no longer taking those medications, we know enough about mom and the capital D delivery. Now let's talk about baby. What was the gestational age at birth? What were the Apgars at one in five minutes? Were there any infant complications in utero related to growth, development, or birth? I like to think about these problems from a micro to a macro level. For instance, are there any known or at-risk genetic abnormalities? Are there any known phenotypic abnormalities or syndromic features? Or was there a complication of life, like meconium aspiration or birth trauma? Each item in the history that sounds abnormal can cue you into physical exam bindings, labs, or follow-up that need attention. A few final things about the baby that are valuable to know even weeks after birth are whether the baby had their eyes and thighs. This is the erythromycin ophthalmic ointment to prevent gonococcal conjunctivitis, vitamin K injection to decrease risk of bleeding, and in most cases, their first hepatitis B vaccine. For me, the birth weight is arguably the most important vital sign to review. We use this to assess the child's growth over time which is essential in the first days to weeks to ensure proper growth and development in extra uterine life. You can expect an infant's birth weight to decrease by up to 10% in the first few days of life. This weight loss happens because the baby is now separated from mother and fetal circulation has changed. So the kidneys start doing all of their own work and diuresing the baby. So they're gonna lose some water weight. Also in those first two to three days, Mom is only going to be producing a fraction of the milk that she will later on by making colostrum. This means that feeds might only be a few mLs, but colostrum is liquid gold for caloric density and nutrition. Once mother's milk comes in and baby becomes adept at breastfeeding or gets the hang of a bottle, we should start to see that weight pick up by about 5-7 to days but C-section moms might experience a delay in their milk coming in. So it's always a good idea to get lactation involved early when you notice a problem. The baby should regain their birth weight by two weeks of age. When I'm seeing a child after they've gone home, I ask about the newborn course. Did they room in with the parents at the hospital or was there a NICU stay? Did they go home with parents at two to three days? Or did they need to stay longer for feeding, breathing, bilirubin, sugar, or other issues? How are things going at home? I ask about illnesses, problems, or parental concerns. Then I always go back to growth and nutrition. How is the baby feeding now? Breast milk or formula type? How many ounces or how many minutes on each breast? And how frequently? You'd be surprised how many times this can change for an infant in the first few weeks of life. I also ask about wet and dirty diapers, their patterns and duration of sleep compared to periods of alertness. Ask about developmental features that you might not be able to assess on exam. Do you feel like your baby hears you and sees you like other babies? Do you feel like your baby moves like other babies, etc.? What's in the newborn physical exam? Now that's a big question. You should have already noted their vital signs and anthropomorphic measurements, the weight, length, weight for length, and head circumference and where they fall in their percentiles on the who charts. You'd typically get an axillary temp unless you're worried about infection, in which case you should definitely get a rectal temp. Get used to a heart rate that's well over 100 and a respiratory rate somewhere between 30 and 60. Neonates also do periodic breathing, where they breathe really fast (laughs) for a few seconds and then pause which is concerning for some parents, but it's totally normal. In a routine newborn exam, you typically won't have a blood pressure unless you're worried about a congenital heart defect. We always talk about documenting a head to toe exam, but the reality in pediatrics is that you get what you can get when you can get it. Work with the child and the caregiver based on how the child is behaving. Despite being a pediatric provider and a mother, I really don't like crying babies and I never wake a sleeping baby until I'm ready to deal with the consequences. So do as much of the observation portion as you can without even touching the baby. Notice the parent-child bonding. Assess their general appearance, color, work of breathing, movements, or any obvious dysmorphic features in the head, face, eyes, or ears. Are the ears low-set or deformed that might make us think either about a genetic abnormality or even clue us into possible kidney disease, because the kidneys and ears are formed at the same time in utero? Note any pits or tags. Look at the eyes. How is their spacing? Do you note abnormal features, alignment, or hypertellerism of the eyes that might signal a syndrome? If they're awake and quiet, I watch to see if they fix and follow me, and then I turn off the light and assess red reflexes. The corneal light reflex is less important here because they can have esotropia or exotropia and be a little bit cross-eyed occasionally for the first few months of life, which is normal. Then before I totally unwrap the baby, I'll listen while they're nice and quiet. Start in the front, then sneak into the back under the blanket and listen skin to stethoscope. I listen to the heart and lungs separately to keep my ears tuned into one organ at a time. Then I listen for bowel sounds. Since you're now done with your stethoscope, you can totally unwrap them. I go back to the head and palpate the fontanelles, sutures, and look for any other signs of birth trauma, like a caput succedaneum or cephalohematoma. You can try to look in their ears with the otoscope, but many neonates have very difficult to assess external ear canals that could be tight and small or filled with vernix. But this is going to actually make them cry, so now you can examine the mouth. Palpate the palate to make sure it's intact. Feel the gums and look at the tongue. Most children will have some degree of lip or tongue tie because we all have frenulums but a truly significant ankyloglossia or tongue tie is much more rare than the dentists who perform frenulotomies would like parents to know. Ensure that both nares are patent. If the baby keeps his head midline, then I palpate the sternocleidomastoid muscle to make sure that there's no thickening or mass. And if they're showing a preference to one side, you might consider a congenital torticollis. Otherwise, you should note a normal range of motion. As you move down the chest and abdomen, you might notice breast tissue, even in males. This is normal and is a product of mom's hormones, which will resolve on their own. Always inspect the umbilical stump in a newborn. You might even be able to assess the vessels. I remember AVA or A-V-A, artery, vein, artery. If the clamp has already come off and it's dry, you might not be able to assess the vessels, but you should make sure the insertion site is clean, dry, and without erythema or discharge. Palpate the abdominal organs as best you can between the screams, but make sure that you feel for bilateral femoral pulses to rule out coarctation of the aorta. Examine the genitals. Make sure that males have a urethral meatus at the tip of the glands and two descended testes. Females may have discharge or bleeding from the vagina, which is also from mom's hormones. Then do me a favor. Always look at the anus on the baby's first exam. It's a really big faux pas for a two-day-old to have signs of abdominal obstruction and nobody has noted an imperforate anus prior to now. Note a normal anal wink or the presence of any dimples or tufts of hair. Flip the baby over as you're inspecting the rest of the spine and take a good look at the skin. You'll commonly see Mongolian spots in children with darker pigmentation in their skin. I flip them back over and am now interested in their extremities. I start at the clavicles, going bilaterally down the arms at each joint, feeling for range of motion, assessing tone, and symmetry of their movement. Sure, we want to see 10 fingers and 10 toes, but we should also note any other bony abnormality to determine if it's a packaging defect from in utero positioning versus something more concerning, like a club foot. On the hips, you'll perform Ortolani and Barlow maneuvers to assess for developmental dysplasia of the hip. But remember, later in infancy, these are not the preferred tests to look for DDH. Lots of students think that you can't perform a neurologic exam on a newborn because they can't talk or follow commands, but you definitely can. Look at their DTRs and primitive reflexes. Newborns should root, suck, and have a Moro reflex. A positive Babinski is normal in the newborn period, but it would be concerning later in infancy and childhood. The palmer grasp is maybe the most charming of a newborn reflex because you feel like this little baby just wants to hold your hand. You can also elicit a stepping reflex, which is really cute too. It's time to swaddle the baby back up and hand them over to their parents for a pacifier or milk so that you can talk about the rest of the visit. You'll review the completed screening tests from the first few days of life, hearing, bilirubin, congenital heart disease, and the newborn screen you'll decide if any further testing is necessary, perhaps if the child is jaundiced and warrants further bilirubin testing. Then discuss anticipatory guidance and education with the family based on your assessment of the family's risks or protective factors. Give the parents an idea of what to expect from their baby until their next visit with you and help them understand how they can best care for their child at home while preventing injury or illness. Babies are ever-changing, and I want you to remember that the history and physical exam findings you'll report on each visit will actually change too. For instance, you heard me harp on the need to inspect the anus on the first exam, but documenting a patent anus on a one-month exam will just make you look silly. I don't really care about the umbilicus after the stump falls off unless there's an abnormal finding like a granuloma or an umbilical hernia. So pay attention to each aspect of your exam and be sure to address pertinent neonatal findings while you keep their changing growth and development in mind. That ever-changing physiology means that you also need to know when certain findings are pertinent or normal. For instance, will you still report a mom's GBS status when the baby's six months old? Certainly not. It's no longer relevant to the baby's risk of infection. And you should know that the posterior frontal closes at one to two months of age. So an open one after that time is actually an abnormal finding. Remember that we only care about exam findings that are unique to children. I can promise you that I have never listened for a carotid brewery and certainly never percussed diaphragmatic excursion. So documenting these findings would worry me that you really don't understand the normal pediatric exam. There's a lot to remember on a newborn exam, but the good news is that every parent is thrilled to talk about their baby and answer your questions. Plus, babies are so compact that you can go top to bottom more than once in a relatively short period of time. It's important to familiarize yourself with common normal and abnormal findings beyond our discussion today. And rest assured that the more babies you assess, the more comfortable you'll be with this population and the exam. Always remember, pediatric patients are not just small adults. I hope that you'll like, comment, and subscribe to The Peds NP, where we focus on the practical application of evidence-based practice. There is no financial support or conflict of interest in this or any episode of The Peds NP. You can see show notes and references at www.thepedsnp.com. Remember that this isn't just a podcast. You're learning for the babies. I'm Becky Carson. Take care.